Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message was given by Larry Vold. All right, listen, find your sermon outline there in your bulletin if you haven't already done so. And let's make our way to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, please. 26 and 27. Page 197 in that book rack Bible, everybody's Bible open, find the scripture there. While you're finding your way there, just a quick announcement. We don't often say this, but every now and then I just want to remind us. We've had, we've had a lot of, uh, and we love babies, we love children, but we've had a lot of babies and children the last few weeks I've noticed kind of just like chatting up. I think they like the book of Leviticus maybe, I don't know. And so they've been kind of chatting. And just a reminder, friendly reminder, that if your kids start doing that, if you can just slip out from wherever you are and get out into a common area, just really help with the concentration issue. And I know sometimes we don't really think about that. Um, and, you know, actually, I've, I was thinking about that because today we're talking about promises. Uh, we're talking about God's promises to us and our promises to God. And, and I was thinking where I heard one time that promises are like fussy babies in church. Uh, they should be carried out at once. Um, that's just a little reminder. We finish our brief survey in the book of Leviticus today. We've been in this series for about eight weeks, and, and I have to tell you that I have really grown in love with this book in a new way, and I hope you have too. Um, it's been interesting. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, you remember Pastor Mark Tyler came back from his world tour uh, of missions work, and we, we got to hear that great report, and that was kind of a surprise. We weren't sure if he was going to get back in time, but he did, and so we, we plugged him in on that Sunday morning, and I was walking through the lobby on that Sunday, and I met several people who said this, and one person said it really. They said, it was so exciting to hear what Mark had done around the world and the, what God's doing. That was really phenomenal. But I have to say, I was so excited to hear about Leviticus this morning. And when I heard that, it was like, has that ever been spoken in church before? I mean, when has that ever been said? I just, just that was music to my ears because one of the goals of this series was just to get us excited about the whole counsel of God's word. And, and so that was a blessing. For those of you that shared that sentiment, that was beautiful. We've been learning about the way of holiness uh, and the way of holiness includes, as we've been learning, focusing on God, admitting our need, coming to worship, staying clean, trusting God's forgiveness, reflecting His holiness, taking time to celebrate. And today, we're looking at keeping your vows or keeping your promises to God. The way of holiness is, is all about a life of, of, of worship and wholeness and witness. It's a life of recognizing that God has created us to live a certain way, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Today, as we come to the last couple of chapters of this book, we, we're going to read, and how many of you did your homework? Did you do your homework this week? Okay, many of you read these two chapters, and you saw that word, if. You, you saw what God's promising his people. You saw what God's inviting us to commit to. It's sort of like the covenant treaties we find in the Old Testament, where the, where the, uh, the covenant is ratified. God is saying, this is what I promise you, and when you make a promise to me, I expect you to keep it, and, and this kind of a culmination of all that is been said as the children of Israel are getting ready now if we were going to go right into the book of Numbers we would be actually leaving Mount Sinai and we'd be heading in toward the promised land 
And this is what God was instructing the people. It's all about promises, keeping our promises, being sure with our promises. Speaking about promises, again, I was in the store a while back. I saw a cute little card. You know in the relational section of cards? Well, there was this one card where if you've ever been through a breakup in relationship kind of hard, this one card said, when, when we were together, you always said you would die for me. Dot, dot, dot. Open the card. Now that we've broken up, I think it's time you keep your promise. Now, that's a little rough, but we kind of expect people to keep their promises. But the reality is, as human beings, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we don't do very well at keeping our promises, do we? But God is perfect in keeping promises. God is sure all the time. Whatever God says, we can trust him in it. And what I find in these last two chapters of Leviticus, as we look at uh, the, the mega themes of these two chapters are commitment and obedience and promises and vows and sacrifices and tithes, all of this kind of mounting up in this covenant ratification that I'm going to do this, God, I'm going to follow you with all my heart, and God says, I'm going to keep my word, and I'm going to, I'm going to come through on all my promises to you. And so when we realize that God never falls down on his promises, but we fall down all the time, what I glean from these last two chapters is there are some things that we can trust about God, promises that are about God that help motivate us in staying true with our promises. Now, we're not always going to stay true with our promises, but I want to, don't you? When we say we're going to follow God, we want to follow through on that. And by God's grace and his provision under the new covenant with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're able to do far more than we could possibly ever dare to ask or dream as we come before the Lord, the God who is faithful over all things. So here's how I'm going to suggest today we learn about these principles. I'm going to set this up by saying that there are six motivating truths that come alongside of our sincere desire to keep our promises to God. These are the motivating truths that help us stay true to the promises we make to God. If you're taking notes, here's the first one, right out of chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. And here's, here's the truth that we can hold on to that comes alongside of our desire to stay true to God. And here it is. He is Lord. Say that with me. He is Lord. Write that down. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 26. God says, do not make idols or set up uh, an image or a sacred stone for yourselves and do not place a carved stone in the land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now, that was echoed from back in chapter 18. You remember a few weeks ago, in chapters 18 through 20, we said 24 times in that section, we have that phrase, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Why is God saying that to his people? I am the Lord. He's saying that because he wants to remind them that he is sovereign, that he's in control. And it's another way of basically saying, hey, what I'm telling you is true, and you have my word on it. I'm going to keep all of my promises. And this is what God wants all of us to know today, that he's faithful in his promise keeping and he is Lord and that deserves from us complete surrender, absolute obedience, the best of our offering to him, the highest pitch of our devotion. He must be first. 
In fact, let's go to the New Testament really quickly. Let's just see how this looks like in the, in, under the New Covenant in the book of, of Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 1, really quickly, if you can turn there, and I'm trying to get there quick too. Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Christ and his glory and who he is, for by him all things are created, verse 16, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things are created by him and for him. Verse 17, Colossians 1, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Watch this, so that in everything he might have the what? The supremacy, the NIV says, or that he might come to have first place. Listen, if we're not giving God first place in our lives, we are out of sync with where he really wants us. He wants daily complete surrender. He wants daily every part of our lives. Now the thing that we realize about this as Christ followers, the most beautiful thing about this is that God gives to us a charge to follow him, not to weigh us down, but to set us free, to give us the life that really we've always looked for and wanted. The enemy comes along and tells us that if we surrender everything to Christ, we'll be hindered. We'll lose in the end. We won't get all the things that we want in life. But the commands of God are not burdensome. They are, in fact, life-giving. They give us freedom. They give us joy. And the reason we we do surrender it all to him is because we realize he is Lord. This was the charge of the early church. Remember Acts 2, 36? Peter stands before the people at Pentecost and he says, let all of Israel be assured of this. This God that has, that has given us Christ, he has made Christ both Lord and Christ. The marching orders of the early church was that Jesus Christ is Lord and we must submit to him. We must follow him in our lives. And somewhere in the midst of our modern culture and, and where some of us are in our lives today, we kind of look at the lordship of Jesus as being an optional thing. It's not optional. He's Lord or he isn't. And if he is Lord, he deserves our 100% allegiance. Are you following that? So that's the truth that comes alongside of whatever promises or desires we have to follow him are made. The second motivating truth that I see in this passage starts in verse 3 of chapter Leviticus 26, if you go back to Leviticus 26, is that not only is he Lord, but he is, uh, or he will bless. Say that with me. He will bless us. Now if you read this chapter carefully, I said last week, you'll see this little word if. It shows up 30 times in this chapter. A little word, two-letter word, but big implications. The little if is always followed by what God says, I will. If you, then I will. This is probably why some people, listen, who never come to see what God has already done for them, try to live in relationship with God on the basis of sort of a bartering thing. Remember the show years ago, Let's Make a Deal? Ever seen that show? That was an old show when I was a kid growing up and, and there would be a guy, you know, making a deal with people in the crowd and they could choose between this curtain or that curtain. They could choose what's in the box or choose what, you know, the, the, the lovely lady holding the little card had in her hand. You'd choose, you'd make a deal, let's make a deal. And a lot of us play that with God. We think that the way God wants us to be in relationship is that we'll make a deal. We do this, God, and then you'll do this for us. 
It sounds a little bit like that right here in this passage. But I want to remind all of us that under the covenant, God has already provided everything that we need. He's provided the, the, the spirit of his spirit that lives within us, that can lead, lead us, point us to where we need to go. But let's just stop under this old covenant where God says, look it, I'm going to be faithful to all my promises. You follow me and these are the things that are going to happen. Let's talk about some of the blessings that God told his covenant people, Israel, starting in verse 3. He says, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain. And then he goes on and talks about more provisions. But look down in verse 6. He says, I will grant peace in the land. And then down in verse 9, I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. And then he goes on and he talks about verse 11, and I will put my dwelling place among you. So if you want to look, if you want to just write down a couple of the blessings that God has in store for those of us who are following him, just write these words down. First of all, write down provision, verse 4 and 5. God says, under this covenant that we make, you can count on, you can trust the fact that I'm going to provide for you. Next, he says, I'm going to protect you, verses 6 through 8. I will grant peace in the land. You will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. God wants to give us peace. Verse 9, he'll make us productive. He'll take what we bring to him, and he'll multiply it, and he'll make all of the things come through so that we won't lack in our lives. And then verses 11 through 13, you could write down presence, God's presence promises to go with us. Now, I do want to point out, as we write these words down in our notes, that all the if-then statements found in chapter 26 of Leviticus are specifically based on God's covenant promises with Israel. I want you to understand that. The if-then promises are, are based on God's covenant with Israel. They're not necessarily applied straight line to our lives in Christ because this was under the old covenant, it was based on, listen, you keep your promise, I'm going to keep my promise, and when you do that, this is going to be the result. Sometimes we confuse that under the new covenant, we kind of revert back. We revert back that somehow, you know, if I, if I can somehow be faithful, then I'm going to get blessed in my life. But we're reminded under the new covenant that Christ's faithfulness has accomplished the covenant. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant because everything is fulfilled in Christ. And we don't come to God on our merit, our good works, our ability to perform. We come completely on the merit of Christ alone, right? And because Christ has per been perfect in all his ways, because he was without sin, because he accomplished the work that the Father had given him when he came to this world, we come on his merit alone. And that's the blessing of the new covenant. There's still this overriding principle, however, and I just pointed out that the axiom, excuse me, I'm just going through puberty, I guess. The axiom, <laughs> the axiom of the Bible is that as you follow the commands of God, as you trust the commands of God, there will be in principle form a life of blessing that follows. Now watch this. Sometimes blessing comes in the form of adversity and trials. You say, whoa, wait a minute, I don't know if I like that. But that's a reality. Sometimes blessing comes in the form of adversity and trials, even though you're following God. How do we know that? Even under the old covenant. Remember the life of Job? He was following the Lord, but God allowed him to go through trial and suffering. 
When we come to the New Testament, we know that trial and suffering are a part of the way God is going to demonstrate his faithfulness, his provision in our lives. And I always think of my good buddy Jim, who usually sits right down here. He's not here today. But a guy for the last 11 years has fought numerous cancers. He had pancreatic cancer. Very few people come through that. God has been merciful and gracious and has continued to sustain him. And, continue, and he's in a battle physically right now as well. That's not why he's not here today, just to let you know. But he's been in a physical battle. But he's constantly reminding me. I was just praying with him just, this, just two days ago on Friday. And he was telling me, Pastor Larry, the greatest thing that has ever happened in my life happened to me 11 years ago when I contracted cancer. Because God has used this in my life to cause me to see what life is really all about. And my family now is so huge because everywhere I go, when I go to the cancer clinics, when I go get my treatments, when I'm in the hospital because I've been knocked down again, and all these things that have happened in his life, he says, I get to meet people and share with them the provision of Christ in my life. And so many of them, and I know it by the truth, and some of us are sitting here this morning who are recipients of that message from him that, they, that we were pointed to Jesus because of what Christ was doing in his life. And beloved, that is a beautiful thing. Listen, blessing, blessings in the form of provision, protection, productivity, presence, also sometimes come in the package of adversity and trials. So let this simple but profound motivation cause us to see today that God is a God that loves to bless. He is Lord and he loves to bless. Here's a third truth I see in this passage that comes alongside of my desire to keep my promises too. And that is that God is not mocked. Say that with me. God is not mocked. Verses 14 through 39 of chapter 26. Now, this is where the, the theme changes from not I will bless you, but if you disobey me, if you walk away, I'm going to bring discipline and punishment on your life. Now, can I point out again, can I remind you that this is strictly to the covenant God had made with his people Israel, and don't see yourself in a straight line application to this passage. However, we'll get to the practical timeless truth in just a minute. But here we see this, this reminder to us that God wants us to keep his commands. Verse 14, God says to the people, If you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you will reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. <laughs> now, if you were in Israel at the time, I'm sure this would be very motivating when you think about this. Verses 16 and 17, here's what's going to happen. Sudden terror, sickness, and defeat before their enemies. Verses 18 through 20, drought resulting in poor harvest. Uh, verses 21 and 22, wild animals that will kill and bring fear among the people. Verses 23 through 26, warfare, famine, and plagues. Verses 27 through 31, inhumane acts, a complete destruction of religious sanctuaries due to the idolatrous sanctuaries that will exist. And then finally, verses 32 through 39, a scattering and a removal of God's people from the land. God is actually walking them down, listen to this, he's walking them down a prophetic timeline of what's going to happen as he already knows they're not going to be able to keep my covenant. God is amazing in this way. You know, when he calls us to follow him, he knows. He knows we're 
made of flesh. We know, he knows that we are sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. And as Romans 5 says, that through one man's sin entered the world and through that sin condemnation for all. And aren't you glad, and let me just back up here, this timeline, this prophetic timeline, if we know our Bibles and if we've been around long enough to study the Old Testament, we know that what this is a crescendo leading to is actually the captivity of God's people under first the Assyrians and then later ultimately under Babylon. And all of this is fulfilled in Scripture. Watch this, 700 years before it even happened. Isn't that amazing? I just find that amazing. That God is writing into the script of his people that if you don't follow me, if you break my laws, if you turn your back on me, you are going to live in captivity. Oh, you're still going to be my people, but you're going to go through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. It's as if God was saying, you know, the choice is yours, but I already know the choice you're going to make. This is a, a, a a very sobering reminder to us under the new covenant. Now watch this. This doesn't strictly apply to us, but it does have a dotted line reference to us. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned this, and I'll just put it on the screen right now. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Can we read that? Let's read it with the thought of how the new covenant has a connection to this principle found in the Old Covenant about God is not mocked, okay? Watch this. Let's read this together. Ready? Starting here we go. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That's Leviticus 26 for the New Covenant believer. That's exactly what Leviticus 26 is saying. But under the New Covenant, we realize that Christ has already fulfilled all of the law. And God is never going to reject us or turn us away because in Christ we are safe. But watch this. This overarching principle of, of God not being mocked is that we, we reap what we sow. And if we do fall away, if we do start trusting ourselves, if we do turn our backs and walk away from Christ, as some of us, maybe all, well, all of us have done to one degree or another, there's going to be consequences that come into our lives. I hope that one thing the book of Leviticus has taught us is that God takes sin seriously. Have we seen that? It, it results in a bloody mess. Someone is gonna die. And in fact, he did. Jesus, our Savior. I think about this when I read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Our fathers disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant for the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What motivates me to keep my promises with God? The fact that he is Lord, the fact that he will bless, the fact that he's not mocked. Here's a fourth thing I see in chapter 26, and that is that he is always faithful. Say that with me. He is always 
faithful. This comes at a good time in the text to remind us that even when we've blown it, even when we've turned our backs, and God's saying to the children of Israel, even when you have rejected me and despised my name, if in that state you are in, you call out to me, look at verse 42, I will remember my covenant with you. And verse 44, I will not reject you or abhor you so as to destroy you completely. <laughs> That's awesome. God's saying, look it, when you come to the place in your life where you realize you've messed up, I'm faithful to my promise. This is so good. I don't know how many of us might be sitting here today and you think, I've talked to people a lot that tell me this. You know, I've just gone too far. I, I believe in Christ and I believe he came into my life, but you don't know the course, the trajectory of my life over the last five, ten, whatever years. I have gotten so far off course. You might be that person here today. And can I just lovingly remind you and point you to the God that we serve this morning. He is faithful. Watch this. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his end of the bargain even though we don't keep it. But in the moment we realize and we repent and confess, God doesn't say, now you got to jump through a bunch of hoops and now you got to prove yourself to me. God just says, come on home. And he welcomes us back in. And he's like that father who stood on the porch and saw his son, the prodigal, racing back to the father with, you know, with total chagrin and shame in his life because of leaving the father for his own life and his own pursuits. And what does the father do? He embraces him and he gives him a party. And he says, Jesus tells this parable to say, this is how God forgives. Luke 15. So God is, is, is a beautiful forgiving, uh, grace-filled, pardoning God. He is always faithful to keep his promise. Never too late to come back to Christ. I wonder if that applies to anybody here today. What motivates keeping our commitment? He is Lord. He will bless. He's not mocked. He's always faithful. Then we come to chapter 27. And this is an interesting passage. And boy, if there was anything that applied more to Israel than to us, it's here. But let me try to explain a little bit about what's going on. And let me put them quickly into two principles. And we've got to be fast here. In verses 1 through 29 of chapter 27, what I see here as the motivating principle is that God is worthy. He is worthy. Just say that with me. He is worthy. Notice in verse, 20, uh, verse 1, it says, speak to, excuse me, verse 2, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to dedicate persons to the Lord by giving equivalent values, set the value, and he goes on and he talks about valuations. Male and female, and I know some of you might have been a little offended by that. Gee, the value for a male seems higher than the female. Why is that? That has nothing to do with the valuation of the person. Here's, here's what's going on. There would be people that say, I want to dedicate my son or my daughter, or I want to dedicate myself to the Lord. So they come to the tabernacle of meeting, and later they would come to the temple, and they say, I want to dedicate myself. The problem is, if you were not of the tribe of Levi, you couldn't serve in the Levitical role of the Levites, and there were plenty of Levites to do the service, and so in a sense, you were sort of making a word vow. You were saying, I want to dedicate myself, or I want to dedicate my son or my daughter, 
And so the priest would put a valuation on the kind of workload and what that person was able to do. And simply put, men were able to work harder and do more than the women. This is not, you know, a, a sexist slam. Please don't be offended by this. This was the fact that men were able to do more work. It was expected of men to do more work. And so the valuations were based on that, not the valuation of personhood. I hope, I hope you can see that. And so what God is saying here is that if you came and you wanted to dedicate, because you couldn't put yourself into that actual dedication form, you would pay a price. You would, you would redeem with money. You would bring an offering as a statement of that dedication that you were giving. And this applied not only to humans, it applied to animals. And as you read down through this whole text, uh, you could see that all of this was about, you could do this with land, you could do this with property. It was a way of dedicating things to God. And as I read that and I studied that, it sort of made me realize, why are the people doing this? Because, back to verse 2, when anyone brings a special vow, by the way, the word special there in the Hebrew, it's a hard word to translate, it literally means a vow of a vow. It means uh, it means a voluntary. It means something that I'm prompted, that I, I feel incited to do for God. And the reason why the people would do this is because they saw how great God was. God is worthy to bring and dedicate ourselves to Him. And, and so I wrote down the principle, one of the accompanying motivations of me keeping my vows and promises to God is the fact that He's worthy Plain and simple. He's, he's worthy of all that I bring to him. I can bring everything to him and he's worthy of that, right? Granted, this is not an easy text. I, I think of Colossians 2.17 where the writer Paul says that these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All these are shadows to us. We don't fully understand. Hebrews 9 verse 5 says, uh, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, but speaking of the articles of the tabernacle, he says, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. There was even a distance then from what uh, was back in the book of Leviticus. And so we recognize as new covenant saints that we have really distanced ourselves. We are now under the new covenant, which has superseded the old covenant. But there's this beautiful picture of everything that I come in dedication. I come because he is worthy. There's nothing too great that I can give to God. There's no offering too great. There's no uh, gift that I can bring too great. There's nothing. However, what God says to his people that applies to us as well is that when you make a vow to God, don't be late in, in paying it. I mean, God said, listen, you, you don't have to bring these things to me. But if you do, I expect you to follow through. That's what Leviticus 27 is about. If you make a vow, make sure you pay it. Don't cheapen the vow. I was thinking in my own life, how many times I said, oh God, I, I want to do this for you. And then, you know, I fall short of that. I should not. If I, make, if I voluntarily bring something to the Lord, I should bring it all. I should say, God, I'm not holding back. What I said I'm going to do, I do. Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 6 says, when you make a vow to God, don't be late or delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It would be better for you not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Boy, that's a great principle, isn't it? I mean, don't make vain promises to God. Because, watch this, because God is a promise-keeping God, He expects us to keep our promises too. So when you make a promise, 
It's okay not to make a promise, but if you make a promise, I think Old Covenant, New Covenant, God says, hey, fulfill it. Be blessed in it. All right, so he is Lord, he'll bless us, he's not mocked, he's always faithful, he's most worthy. And finally, we have this last little section, verses 30 through 34 of chapter 27, where we go back into tithing. And I'm just going to remind all of us, we've been through this many times, that tithing is a reminder to us that God owns it all. Say that with me. God owns it all. Matthew 10, 8. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus wants us to live lives based on the fact that we can never outgive him. When we bring a tenth of our income to God and his work, we are saying, God, the tenth doesn't belong to you. It all belongs to you. And the tenth, as we give it to you, reminds us of that truth. The tip is not a tithe. A token is not a tithe. A tenth is a tithe. You say, well, wait a minute. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the tithe is never taught. I agree. It's not taught, but it's not condemned either. And Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, he says, you hypocrites, you, tenth, uh, you, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, and you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. You should have kept practicing tithing without neglecting, or excuse me, you should have practiced the latter, meaning justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting your tithe. So, so the Bible never lets us off the hook. That's why here at Neighborhood Church we teach the principle of the tithe. That in all that we give to the Lord, there should be a sense of of which it all belongs to the Lord and we release 10% as a reminder. Finances, our time, our talents, everything. We need to be giving because it all belongs to God. Which is a great place to end the book of, of Leviticus. Because really what this book is all about is reminding us as his people that we belong to him and he's promised his relationship to us And if we will follow him in this covenant that he's made possible through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, we will live lives of true worship, of true wholeness, and of true witness in our world. And that is a beautiful way to close this book. And I hope today, if the Lord has been just walking along with you over these last eight weeks, that God would just stir your heart to say, God, you deserve it all. I hold nothing back. I live my life as an offering to you. Let's go to the Lord right now. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you, Lord, for this book. Lord, we've only scratched the surface. There's so much here. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we've scratched the surface, you will help us, Lord, to know what it means to live holy lives. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy, you tell us throughout this book. So, Lord, Give us grace to live lives of true worship, of true wholeness, and of true witness for you. And Lord, if you brought someone to this service today that has wandered away, Lord, may they today say, Lord, thank you for the promise. I come back. I'm going to come back to you right now. And if that's you, just do that. Just confess and repent of sin right now. And if this morning you've never come to trust in Christ, see him as the one who has kept God's covenant so that you can come by faith this morning and receive his righteousness, a righteousness that comes by faith. Lord, thank you for 
meeting with us today and hearing our prayers. We give you praise and thanksgiving. Amen. This morning, we are going to receive a benevolent offering. We do this from time to time. Last week, I shared with you the need to address the poverty and brokenness that are found in our communities. Did you know that three of the poorest schools in this community is one mile from our church? Over 1,500 children live below the poverty line with families making an average of $1,000 a month. One in four of these children will never graduate from high school. One third of these children come from homes where there is not a father and a mother present. It's hard to hope when you can't find a job, when you don't have a place to live, or there's not enough food to eat. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to help the children within a one-mile proximity of our church, 1,500 children who attend these schools below the poverty line to get the necessary school supplies they need when they go back to school in one month from today. And today, every penny we give is going to go toward helping those kids. Watch this. $20 will supply a child with everything that child needs to start well this year. Would you help us and help them? Lord, we ask for this offering now that it will bless these children and these families. These families are not a part necessarily of our church. They'll come up here, Lord, just grateful that there's been some love placed on their children's lives. So Lord, we do this now out of obedience because you told us to care for the poor, and we're gonna do that today. And we thank you, Lord, for the ministries we support like Salvation Army and City Team and, and First Resort and ministries that are out on the cutting edge of meeting people in their crisis. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless this offering as we bring it. And for those that give, even throughout the month, to our benevolent fund, thank you and bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.